Okay, this is a. Uh, oh. Uh, what is happening? Okay, it's going. All right, this is the Christian Theology number two class, and we are continuing our study in salvation, looking at the theology of salvation. And just kind of a quick review. Uh, last week, we first asked kind of what comes to mind when you think about salvation. We wrote up on the board all the different words and ideas and um, thing concepts that you, you think about. And the, the kind of point of it all was that there's a lot of things that you think about when it comes to salvation. And we then asked the question, you know, if Scripture can simplify salvation into one sentence, you know, where in Acts 16.31... Paul and Silas speaking to the Philippian jailer says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's pretty simple. Why are we spending so much time and effort and energy uh, studying a theology of salvation? And uh, how would you guys answer that question? Because the, what temptation sometimes is people say, and theology and doctrine, that's just divisive. Why do you spend so much time? Nobody agrees on all this stuff, so why, why spend time doing it? Understand the words better. Like, what does "believe" mean? To begin saying from. Why do you need to say? Yeah. yeah. So to understand it better. Yeah. To, to uh, what is it? sometimes we have just a generic idea of what the like words "believe" mean, right? Even though this is one sentence, "believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved." Each of those words themselves has a lot of meaning conveyed and packed into them. So yeah, unpacking it more. more. What else? To be able to defend and discern your faith. To be able to defend and discern your faith. Or even the faith of others. Not in a judgmental sense, like going around going like, are you saved? I'm going to discern. But, you know, in being able to help people and encourage people along in their faith. If you see somebody struggling, coming along and helping them understand what salvation is about. There's a sobering aspect of um, scriptures that ought to keep us up at night at times, uh, certainly pastors and elders. Um, but in uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus ends, ends his Sermon on the Mount, well, warning that uh, many will come to me on that day and will say, Lord, 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 did I not prophesy in your name? I did all these great works in your name. And he will say, away with you, I never knew you. And the sobering word in that passage is many. Many will come thinking that they understand salvation, thinking that they know Christ, and will even stand before Him on the Day of Judgment and say, I, I, I'm a Christian. And Jesus said, I don't know you. So I think sometimes, a lot of times, when, when people neglect to study these things more deeply, um, that then also can lead to a failure to truly understand where they are at within their relationship with the Lord. Uh, Hebrews, if you study the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a lot of warnings in that about what I would call the exit ramp to apostasy. And um, that there, there's a, such a thing as people who benefit 
by being a part of the Christian community, but they are never Christians themselves. And one of the ways, one of the beginning warning signs that someone has gotten on to the exit ramp of apostasy, doesn't mean they've actually apostatized yet, but they're starting to merge onto that exit ramp, is they never have a longing for the Word. They never develop an appetite, a desire, like an infant who longs for milk, the person never develops an appetite for anything beyond a superficial, cursory understanding of truths of Scripture. And so these kinds of things are meant to help us whet that appetite to continue growing in that knowledge understanding. Yeah, any other thoughts, though? Well, why, why is it important to talk about these things? Leads to praise. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, that's uh, Romans chapter 11, the very end of it. After 11 chapters of theology, Paul explodes in doxology, in praise. Oh, the depths and the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God, right? Just, he just can't take it anymore. And that comes on the heels of some hard chapters, like Romans 9 through 11, talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. And it's like, if Israel is God's chosen nation, well, you know, what's happening to them now, now that they've rejected their Messiah? You know, he, he talks through some tough stuff to the point, you know, that even we still struggle with thinking about some of those things today. And Paul's rebuttal to people who would argue with him is, who are you, oh man, to say, God, why have you made me this way? Does the clay say to the potter, you can't do that? Some challenging things, but at the end of it, it leads him to praise. I'd say, just in understanding too, as we look at some of these things, I, I believe that they will help you, if you're not there already, just grow in your um, application and confidence of your salvation. Like you think about, we'll be talking about things like eternal security and the difference between that and assurance of salvation, as we talk about those things. Have growing in your understanding of what it means to have faith and to exercise faith. We'll be talking about what it means to be called, to be elected unto salvation, to be kept by the Lord Jesus. We talk, those things just help us grow in our confidence and our faith, help you grow in your understanding of evangelism. Why can I go and sh why, when I share the gospel with somebody and they just reject it? Why do they reject it? Why? I mean, I've presented it clearly to them. I've answered their arguments. Why are they still, you know, my family member, my coworker, my neighbor? Why, why are they rejecting these things? So I think all these things will just kind of continue to be made more of the clear as we study. We looked last week at a bunch of different. We wanted to answer the question first: What is salvation? Just kind of did a real high altitude survey of how the Bible talks about it. We looked at different words, particularly in the Old Testament. And the reason why I always like to start with the Old Testament is because whenever somebody in the New Testament is talking, they have in their minds the Old Testament. And so when you understand the Old Testament, it's going to lead to always a deeper understanding of the New Testament, because that's what's in their mind. We looked at all the different aspects of it, kind of compared it to a diamond. There's all these little facets to salvation, and we're just turning that diamond and seeing all the wondrous uh, scintillations of God's salvation. We looked at what we are saved from. And then we wanted to ask the question, how? 
how are you saved before we get to maybe the more the why you're saved. Um, we understand now what salvation is, but how does God bring about salvation? And so um, how would you answer that? How is it that God saves Sinners. How is God the justifier of the ungodly? How is he both just and the justifier of the ungodly? I would accept the generic Sunday school answer for this as well. It's not a trick question. How is anyone who is saved, how? How is it made possible? Come on, guys, this is Gospel 101. The penalty's been paid for by Yeah, the penalty's been paid for by Christ. Jesus. Jesus, I, if you just said Jesus, I would have been, yay. <laughs> That's the Sunday school answer, right? If you're in, when in doubt, Jesus, yes. Jesus is the grounds, his blood, his death, his sacrifice. We often use the, the word atonement. And we have to be careful with that word because that word is not actually in the Bible. The word atonement is not. It's not a biblical word, just like in the sense like Trinity the Trinity is not a biblical word. You aren't going to find the word Trinity, but the concept is there. So atonement is just a word that we use to describe Jesus, what Jesus' death did in saving us of our sins. The more biblical word would be propitiation, which is in Romans 3.23. So it says, states out for the bat, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. But then the solution, how we are saved is we are justified. That's the saving act. We are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So his Blood, his death, which is representation of his death, his giving his life, is a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath, pays the penalty for our sin, pays the penalty of um, the actual physical death, also pays the penalty of the spiritual uh, ramifications. The you know he satisfied God's eternal, uh, infinite wrath against our sin. So that's the key word. And then last week we talked a little bit, briefly touched on the topic of um, kind of understanding uh, the extent of Jesus' atonement, the extent. How far does it reach? Um, so I'm just going to put real quick here, and we'll then I'll t see if you have any questions. Um, So another, this is the fancy way of talking about it. Another way is to say, uh, what did Jesus's death accomplish? Or another way you could ask is, who did Jesus die for? 
Because when we talk about Jesus' death, one another way we would describe it, his atonement is a substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. In a sense, what that means is Jesus took our place and took the punishment we deserve. He was a substitute. He stood in our place. And so whose place did Jesus stand in for? Did he stand in the place of the whole world, or did he stand in the place as a substitute for a select people? There's three views. Three views, all of which are held by good, godly people. Okay, So if you're in this room and you're listening to this and you're like, well, I'm that view, and uh, that's, that's, you know, that's fine. We're going to talk about the different views briefly. So the first one would be, you could just call it uh, general redemption. Okay, and this is this would be the view that says that um, uh, I think kind of philosophically summarized by Jesus's death is sufficient for all, but it's efficient for the elect. So in one sense, Jesus his death is made for all the world, and so Jesus calls all the world to saving faith. I have died for everyone, but you cannot be saved unless you turn to me in faith. Okay, so this is not universalism. Universalism is the teaching that Jesus died for all and all will therefore be saved. That's not that what that position means. Um, so general redemption, general atonement. Again, it's the idea of, I'll just put it here, sufficient for all, but only efficient or effective for the, the ones who believe, or you could say, as the Bible calls, those who believe are also called the elect. You could say it that way, okay? General redemption, that's number one. Uh, the second view would be, um, sometimes people call it limited atonement. I prefer particular redemption. I'll explain why I prefer that word, and many others do as well. Um, so particular redemption would then say that Jesus' death was particular in its scope. That Jesus had a goal and plan to save a select people, and that his substitutionary atonement substituted for that people and not for the whole world. Now there's a bunch of logical reasons why, scriptural arguments why, again, for both sides. Both, both uh, sides are going to have certain scriptures they go to to argue for, and we can talk about some of those in a second. Um, we can get as deep into this as you want, we can stay shallow, um, but uh, just trying to give you the main views. Okay. Then the third view, and this one is... I, I guess I don't know for sure. I've not looked at it historically, how it's developed over time. I think it's somewhat relatively a newer view. Um, and it's called the, um, that's an M, <laughs> multiple intentions view. And so what this view is, is that when Jesus died, his death accomplished, his atonement accomplished multiple things. Not just the, so the one thing would be it accomplished salvation for the elect, and then for it accomplished things for unbelievers. So they, the people who believe in this view would be like, guys, I don't know, I'm going to throw some names out, but if you don't know, it's okay. Like Bruce Ware, that is a good theologian in Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, written some great books. Uh, my, one of my professors in seminary, godly man, had this view. Um, 
this would be like uh, John MacArthur. Uh, but the funny thing is, John MacArthur used to be over here, and now he's here. So <laughs> people kind of change camps, right? And as they study and whatever. But anyways, I just want to say there's, there's a good godly people on, on all these camps. So, um, so that's kind of the idea of trying to wrestle with some of the scriptures uh, that we come across in the Bible that seem to teach that Jesus died not just for the elect, but for all. So, for you know, John 3, 16 is one that most people come across and think of, where it's, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe may, uh, will not perish but have everlasting life. Another one would be 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. So then you're using right the atonement word there. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. <gasps> okay. Well, what what's that mean? Does that mean that uh, Jesus, you know, died for all and sufficient? Like his blood is infinite; he can save everybody, but. It's only efficient for those who believe? Or does that mean that Jesus died in different ways for everybody? Well, so you gotta, you got to look at what that passage means in its context and everything like that. But another passage would be uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. So what does that, what does that verse teach? Is it teaching that Jesus is, again, the Savior for all, but then saves only those who believe? Or is it multiple intentions? Is it particular redemption? So those are just a few. There's, there's uh, many more we could go to that... Um, that people will kind of read those verses and go, okay, hmm, how do I, how am I supposed to understand this? There's a lot of points of agreement between these three camps, and I think that's really important to understand. Everybody, no matter which camp you fall into, and in understanding how God saves people, how the atonement works. It, first of all, is that um, God, if He wanted to, God could save everybody. Like I don't think anybody disputes that. If God wanted to, He could save every single person because Christ's death is infinitely powerful, right? He can do it if He wants. The second thing I think everybody would agree on is that Christ's death only saves those who believe. Right? Nobody in heaven, in heaven doesn't believe in God or follow Jesus and serve Him, right? So everybody would agree in these camps that only those who believe in Jesus, right? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So only believers are to be saved. There's another point of agreement. And the, the other point of agreement is that all, salvation only happens through the gospel. Proclamation of the gospel and the preaching of that message and the reception of that message. But the main question that is left is what is God's intention? What is God's purpose in offering His Son as an atoning sacrifice? What's God's purpose? Did God have multiple purposes? To bless unbelievers with common grace and um, delayed judgment and things like that? Did He have a singular purpose? 
that his substitutionary death was only for people whom he chose and foreknew before the foundation of the world? Or did God in his love send Jesus to die for the world, but that that death, that substitutionary death, would only be effective for those who believe? Again, I'm not here to bash any views. Uh, I certainly have my own particular view, um, but uh, uh, there's good godly folks in all these camps, and, and people, you know, whoever camp you're in, their heart's all in the same place. Like, they want to understand God's Word. They want to, you know, um, honor God and glorify God with a right understanding of the atonement. And the, when the pastor I worked with um, back in Kansas, you know, he and I had disagreement on this, but we had, we worked together. We, you know, preached from the same pulpit and, and just, you know, good godly people can have a, a disagreement over this because their heart's in the same place. So if, uh, let me just stop right there. I'm, I'm, I have another point to make about this, but does anybody have any questions about this? That. <laughs> So which camp are you in? <laughs> sure. Well, I so I can explain that. Yeah, um, where I'm at and then why. So I, I would be in the particular redemption category. And there's a couple reasons why. I This is a very tempting category to be in. So this is what was taught to me in seminary. And um, the reason why this is so tempting is because a lot of times in Scripture, when you're studying theology, um, people want to compartmentalize truth so much that they say it's either this or it's this. And that often is what gets you in trouble with the Bible because we don't like tension. We want to resolve tension. But there's so many things that require Tension. So, for example, the Trinity. Well, either God is one or he's three persons. Like, how can you have both? Well, it's both and, right? He has one being. It's not, a, it's not a paradox. He has one being, that's a different category, and three persons, three and one. And so, but there's some, still some tension there. There's just some difficulty in wrapping our brains around it. Um, s- salvation, we're going to talk about this more in faith. Is it man's responsibility to respond in faith, or is God completely sovereign in salvation? Yes. Both are true. Both are taught in Scripture. That God, uh, apart from God's sovereign work, no one would be saved, and, God, and man is still responsible to respond at the same time. It's like there's some tension there. That's hard. But they are compatible in the Scriptures. Uh, another one would be sanctification. Like uh, Philippians chapter 2, 13, um, Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying earn your salvation. He's saying work outward what's already an inward reality. Like live it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who, who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So which is it? Do I need to obey God, or is God the one working in me to make it happen? Yes. Both are true, right? So again, there's that, and that's the wrestlings people have in all churches everywhere. I mean, that's why people swing between legalism, thinking, I got to do this, I have to obey, and I got to do it in my own strength, is what happens. Or what we call free, free grace, antinomianism, anti-law, where people are just like, I'm just live my life, and I'm just going to 
bask in the gospel and God will just forgive me. I'm not going to worry about living a holy life because anytime I sin, I just got to think about the gospel. Or if I'm struggling with sin, I just got to think about the gospel. I don't need to crucify my flesh or anything. So there's wide extremes and those extremes happen because people say it's either this or it's this. And the Bible says, no, it's both. And so we have to wrestle away with to hold those things in tension. And so I often think like, so, so often it's like you're walking a tightrope, and this is your balance beam, right? You see those tightrope walkers, and then that big stick. That keep, like the scriptures, holding all of the scriptures is, is what, in, in conjunction with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's, so that's just kind of like just an explanation of why this is so tempting, because it tries to do that. It tries to say, well, God has a both and. It's, it's not just to save sinners, but even to you know, help unbelievers and things like that. So that's why it's tempting. I, I don't think it's biblical, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, but why I'm here is for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it's the biggest thing for me is the involvement of the Trinity in salvation. So all three persons are involved in salvation. And when we last semester studied the Trinity, um, God is united in person and purpose, will, right? I mean, Jesus, God doesn't desire one thing, and then Jesus is off doing his own thing, and the Spirit's doing his own thing. Whatever they do, they do in tandem, and they do perfectly, no disagreement, absolute harmony, absolute unity in all things. We see throughout scriptures that Trinity is intimately involved together in uh, salvation. One great example is Titus chapter 3. If you want to turn there, I'll read it here in just a second. Titus chapter 3 is just such an easy, quick um, display of the Trinity's involvement. Uh, there's lots of passages, but this one's just so clear. So Titus chapter 3 verse 4, uh, you see all three persons of the Trinity involved in salvation. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, so speaking of the Father, our Savior appeared, He saved us, speaking of the Father, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the, of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you see that the, each person of the Trinity has an intimate role in salvation. It was God the Father who planned for salvation to be, uh, and then it was Jesus who brought about its accomplishment, and it's the Spirit who brings about its application. Okay? So you see that intimate role there. So God the Father sovereignly purposed to bring salvation before time even began. We mentioned this last week in 2 Timothy 1.9, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundations of the world, God had planned to bring about salvation. If you would turn with me to John chapter 6. So God brought about a sovereign purpose before time even began to, to save uh, people from their sin. And in John chapter 6, we see discussion of this plan. John chapter 6 is a huge, just a huge, such a sweet, powerful text of Jesus preaching in uh, Capernaum. And he says, so in the context, this, uh, the context is so important. Any passage you say that the context is incredibly important. But uh, these folks were following Jesus because they just saw him multiply the loaves and the fishes. 
and they were following him to get more of that. They were like, whoa, check this out, free food. Let's make this guy king. He can just whip it up out of nowhere. We don't have to work anymore. Like, and this stuff, was, I'm sure it tasted good, right? I mean, like we're talking about bread, fish made out of nothing, made from God. I mean, it's like bread from heaven, okay? And so these people travel across the lake and they find Jesus. And Jesus even calls them out. He's like, you're not even here for the real bread of life. You're not here for teaching. You're not here for me. You're here for physical food. You're here for second breakfast, okay? That's what he is. But Jesus is talking to these people who are looking to Jesus, following Jesus, but don't believe in him. And he's addressing these people in this context. But here he says in John 6, 37. Oh, I'm in Luke. That's not going to, that's going to confuse you. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Let me just back up again, just so you see the context. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Okay, so he's talking to these people who are looking for bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is taking a physical illustration and bringing spiritual meaning to it. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All right, he's calling them out. You've seen me, you're hearing my teaching, but just because you're associating with me, just because you're following me, doesn't mean you believe. This isn't real belief. This isn't genuine but then he says this, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is fascinating how he's talking about salvation there, right? He's talking about salvation in the form of God the Father giving Jesus the Son a gift. So part of God's purpose and plan in salvation is the giving of a gift to his Son. All that the Father gives to me will, will come to me, guaranteed, and I will never cast them out. So God has a plan. Part of that plan then, before the foundation is realized in time, of course, in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 shows us the plan of God's salvation uh, displayed on time. It says in verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so you see what we call often the golden chain of redemption, that before time even began, God foreknew who was going to be saved. And I mentioned this last week, foreknowledge there in the Greek is not a reference to foresight. He doesn't look down the corridors of time and say, oh, Tyson's going to believe, so then I'm going to choose him for salvation. Foreknowledge is not about what? It's not about knowing information. Right? It says, those whom he foreknew. People, not what he foreknew. People he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he also then predestined to be conformed. Those whom God foreknows, he brings to the fullness to the very end. If he foreknew them, he predestined them. If he predestined them, he called them. If he called them, he justified them. And if he justifies them, he glorifies them. And only those who are, the, Jesus died to make that happen. Jesus didn't die for God to bring somebody halfway through salvation. So God brings his plan to realize, uh, 
God has a purpose and plan. Jesus brings it to accomplishment. So there's a past several passages. Again, if we go back to John chapter 6, I read verse 37, but if we continue in verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, so God is going to give a gift to the Son, and Jesus is saying, I'm here to make that happen. I'm here to make sure that that gift can be received. And then um, Jesus says, I will lose nothing in verse 39, if we can continue reading. And this is the will of him who sent me, right? You say, Jesus says, I'm here to do the will of God. What is the will of God? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Raise it up on the last day. So again, Jesus brings about the accomplishment. Um, then you see the work of salvation applied. So there's a real close intimacy between Jesus' work of salvation and his um, high priestly ministry. Remember, he's both the high priest and the sacrificial lamb. But for Je those who Jesus died, he also intercedes. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, he lives to make intercession. Jesus does not intercede for unbelievers. He intercedes for those whom he has died for. So there's a, there's a close intimation. And then the Spirit's application of, of that salvation. So the, I just see a, a strong unity between uh, the, the Trinity and salvation um, and the purposes. So God purposed, had a plan of salvation. Jesus brings it to, to accomplishment, and the Spirit applies it. I do not see in those descriptions, in those clear passages, anything that intimates that um, when Jesus' atonement makes people savable, and then it's up to man to respond. It is man's responsibility to respond. The scripture teaches that. But it doesn't teach, in my opinion, my view, that, um, that the, uh, the atonement makes people savable. I believe the atonement actually accomplished salvation, not just a potential salvation. This, to me, implies kind of potentiality. Oh, yeah, it did something. It's sufficient, but it's only effective for those who respond. So, again, I, I'm, not trying to sp I'm not speaking disparagingly at all of these other views. Again, people with great heart intentions studying the same scriptures I'm looking at come to some different conclusions. The other thing that would um, also put me in this category is, um, and the reason why we studied the doctrine of sin first, is that, Nobody, apart from God's intervening work, can be saved. So to say that the atonement makes salvation a potential, well, then nobody will be saved because nobody can save themselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 is very clear, as many other texts of Scripture, that man is dead in his sin. What can a dead man do? If you go to a graveyard and exhume a body, you poke it, you prod it, you yell at it, it will not do anything. It, it, there's nothing that you can stimulate the dead person with. So if we are spiritually dead, which is what Ephesians 2.1 says, it doesn't matter what you do. You can poke them with the gospel. You can shout the gospel at them. You can love them. You can serve them. You can sacrifice for them. But unless God brings somebody to life, they cannot be saved. I mean, John chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to compare that to, you know, continue out that illustration of physical birth. You had no control at all over your physical birth. You have no ability to choose and control your spiritual rebirth. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that. 
And he says, it's just like the wind. You, you can't control the wind. You can't see the wind, but you see its effects. You see where it's blowing. You see where it's going. That's what John, Jesus is teaching John, uh, Nicodemus. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be completely transformed and made alive and made a new creature. So that's why I believe that Jesus died effectively for those whom God has chosen beforehand and that it is completely, like when Jesus died on the cross, it is finished. That his work of atonement was completely done and perfectly done in coordination with the whole Trinity. So that's just kind of where I'm at. Um, but again, good godly folks in all these camps. Uh, any questions after that kind of treatise <laughs> that I just threw at you? If, if there, again, this is an important question to ask. If there's good people in all these other camps, why talk about it? Why bring it up? Why do you guys think? Why is it important to talk about these things? Why just not let, let people be alone? Like, oh, you're in this camp? Good for you. I know. You honor Jesus. You love him. You're seeking to, if you're in this camp, good for you. I mean, it's like, we have a lot of common ground. I mentioned, I didn't write them on the board, but we have a lot of important things where we come to the table on. Why is this important to hash out? It is a secondary issue. Let's be clear. You're not saved at all by your view on this. This is a secondary issue. Not a primary gospel issue at all. You have to be careful. The word Greek, the Bible is Jewish. And we think in terms of either or, yes, no. Mm -hmm. They think in terms of either or and. Mm -hmm. So you can have more than one idea, mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily wrong. Yeah. Our, our uh, Greek upbringing tells us there's only one. Right. Yeah. But that's one thing you got to be aware of and remember. Right. Which is what makes this view very, you know, very uh, attractive. Because mm -hmm. it seems to balance, have a balance. So, yeah. I have lots. Of, if anybody's interested in reading more on this, I got so many resources, articles, books, papers that are written by that talk about these different views and def, you know defenders of these different views too. You know, I'm not just reading people who only support my view, but reading articles and books from guys who support this. You know, just so this, it's good to interact with everybody. But here's the reason why it's so important to talk about this. We want to accurately handle God's word, right? Uh, First, Second uh, Timothy two fifteen, Paul exhorts Paul to, or Timothy to uh, accurately handle the word of God and not be ashamed of of how he does that. And so that's, I mean, all of us want to handle God's word accurately. We want to understand the heart of God um, well and want to do our due diligence. So. If there's good godly people in all these camps and other issues people disagree with you, like eschatology, it's like we don't want to come to a place where it's like, well, we're just never going to agree. So there, there is a right answer. God had an intention in his word. There is one right answer. Um, so how do people come, keep coming to these different conclusions if there's, there is a right answer, but everyone's disagreeing? Um, it always comes down to your principles of interpretation principles for how you interpret the Bible. And the one thing that's so important is that 
the same principles that I would use for trying to interpret these passages is the same principles I want to use for defending the doctrine of the Trinity, defending the doctrine of Jesus' substitutionary atonement, anything. The same principles I use here, I should be able to use in any other passage, any other topic of the Bible to demonstrate the truthfulness of it. Um, and so that's just an important thing. We, well, that's just an important thing to realize why we keep coming to different conclusions when there's good godly people is because there's some hiccup somewhere in someone's interpretation. It could be bias. We all have bias. We all have some presuppositions that we tend to lean towards. Maybe it's the way you were brought up. Maybe it's the uh, you know your favorite teacher of yours. Whatever it is, uh, we all have to, so we have to recognize those in times and be honest about that. Um, and then just worship. Again, the whole goal of all this is to just grow in our understanding of the Lord and leads us to worship Him for the for the for how glorious and awesome our salvation is. So that's just the reason why it's worth it. We're not going to come back to it and talk about it again, uh, this part anyways, unless anybody has any more questions. But again, I'd love to, to um, talk with you more if you guys have any more questions or want some more resources for your, for your study. So we've talked now at length about the how you're saved, the grounds. I want to switch gears now to why. Why are you saved? This is the, what we would call the divine motive. Why, this is a question for you guys, why, would, why does God save anybody? How would you answer that question? Because he loves us. Because he loves us? Desires that we serve him? Good answers so far. Keep them coming. Turn to Exodus 33 while you're thinking of answers. Why does God save anybody? He wants people with him in heaven. For his glory. These are good. Exodus 33, 19. Thirty-three, nineteen. In context here, Moses is asking God to show him his glory, and so God uh, graciously ob- obliges him, but uh, um, hides him in the cleft of the rock. And God says in verse nineteen, He says, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So just based on that verse there alone, and God describing His glory verbally, why is it that God saves people? Why is it that He chooses to save anybody? It's that second half of the verse. Because he's merciful and compassionate. Yeah. Because he is merciful and compassionate. It's because of who he is. Like, God is, we studied this last semester in studying the doctrine of God, God is gracious. God is merciful. He cannot not be who he is. 
He can't go against who he is. So part of the answer to the question is, why does God save anybody? It's because of who he is. He's a gracious God. The other part of it is because he chooses to show grace. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will. I will do what I want. I will be gracious because I want to be gracious. So the big answer to why is because God has sovereign grace. And so I think it's important when we talk about grace to kind of include that adjective sovereign in it because God gets to choose whom he wants to be gracious to. And as we think about why he wants to save anyone, we do have to be careful in just remembering that you know God doesn't do things because of a felt need. He doesn't have any needs. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have some kind of deficiency in glory that we help make up. And God's not lonely. He's not sitting there like, well, I wish I had some people that would just honor me. <laughs> I wish I had some friends that I could save and bring to heaven. He's uh, independent. He, he doesn't have anything, uh, uh, any kind of a need. So that's not the case. But it is true at the same time as some of you guys answered, he does save people to be with him, to be in heaven, to glorify him. He does, he does save people for his glory. That is, all those things are true. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 makes that point very clear. We turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 1, throughout many of the verses here, we see the common refrain of why God... And then again, you see the Trinity, uh, the whole role of the Trinity in salvation. I'll start reading in verse 3, and we'll go through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, there's the Son, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise. Why does God save people? for the praise of His glorious grace. It's going to come back again. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is a guarantee who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory Okay? So you see that just common refrain out there. Why does God save anybody? To the praise of His glorious grace and because He wants to. It's part of who He is. He chooses to do it, and it's for the glory of His grace. Now to the last question, though. Why did God save you? If it's His sovereign choice, why you? I asked Him to. You asked Him to? Because He's full of grace. 
I ask God very frequently to save my brother. He hasn't done it. Why did God save me? Why did God save you? Deuteronomy 29, 29. God could get grace or praise to the glory of his grace by saving my brother, but he's getting glory and grace right now, and I hope he will. You know, I'm continue to pray to that end. But uh, right now he just has praise to the glory of his name by saving me at the moment. Now the question is why? Why me and not him? And hopefully it'll be him before the end. But Deuteronomy 29, 29, the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that are just a mystery. There are some things it's okay to ask. It's okay to ask why and ponder. I think it just leads us to worship. Be like, why me, God? I just, I don't deserve it. I'm so thankful that you did choose to show your grace to me. But the reason why he chose me and not some other one else, somebody else, it's a mystery. It is to his glory and grace, but why me? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. As we continue to study on through these various doctrines and salvation. We talk about calling, election, predestination, all that kind of stuff. I want you guys to keep something in mind, and we'll just kind of close with this and just take any questions. Isaiah 55. This is just a really good uh, perspective to keep in mind when we study God's Word. In Isaiah 55, starting verse 6, God here is talking about salvation. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts your thoughts. It's interesting the context here, right? God is saying, if a wicked man repents and turns to me, I'll have compassion on him. I will save him. You think about maybe people who have done something really wicked, something that really harms you, like an irreparable harm. Think about like somebody whose family was murdered, you know, a family member murdered, right? Or somebody who was a victim of assault and these kinds of things. And that person who perpetrated that crime uh, confesses their sin and forsakes it and turns to Jesus in faith, they'll be saved. The same kind of salvation, same quality of salvation as someone who has never done those things. And to some people, that's like, wow, that's, that's got to be fair. right? How, that person did something terrible. And here God is basically saying His mercy, His grace, His plan of salvation confounds our natural inclinations. My thoughts are not your thoughts. 
My ways are not your ways. So as we approach the scriptures, we have to kind of just come with an attitude of humility, recognizing that we're probably going to get confronted by scripture and the way God does things. And it's like, well, I wouldn't do things that way. Or that's not how I would logically think about things. And the reason why God saves people is one of those things that just kind of naturally confounds us. It's like, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. I mean, like, we all naturally inclined to think, like, you got to do something to earn salvation. Like, that's all of our natural disposition. And it's not until God, you know, breaks our heart of stone and breaks through that and gives us an understanding that we realize, like, whoa, it, it's just, it's a gift. We're saved by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It is a gift of God. And even after we realize that, we still struggle with it at times. Like, it's kind of just like part of our Western culture, I think, of just like, <laughs> we're not always very gracious gift receivers. You know, um, I, I got this lesson taught to me by a, a godly older man at my previous church um, when I was a new believer. He took me out to lunch after church one Sunday, and he, he's like, I got lunch, Tyson, I'm buying it. And I protested. Right? I thought I was being polite. I was like, oh, you don't have to do that, Dave. It's fine, it's fine. And, and you know, I was, I was trying to be what I thought polite. And he just goes, Tyson, graciously accept my gift. <laughs> I was just like, oh. I was, I was being rude. Like here was somebody who was wanting to love, show, show love, and appreciation, sacrifice for me, and I was putting off. Say we can do that with salvation a little bit, right? Which is like uh, it's a nice idea. It's like I have, we have a hard time receiving something free because we often is like there's no such thing as free in this world, right? But salvation is free, and so with the way we see this work down our lives is if we sin. We struggle as Christians. We feel guilty, and it's like, man, I gotta do something to make this up to God. I gotta. We kind of become practical Catholics. I gotta do some. I gotta do some kind of hail marys. I gotta. I gotta grovel in my guilt. I gotta have some cathartic experience. I gotta. I need to go read my Bible for an hour after sinning that and what I just did there, and then God will be a little more happy. That's that's treat. You know, that's that's trying to add works to the gospel. Instead of just going to God and be like, I'm saved only because of Jesus. And so it's just a sweet reminder, God's ways are not our ways. We're going to look more at grace uh, next week. It's not going to take much time to finish talking about grace uh, it is, uh, and the different applications of it. And, um, and then we'll move on to the next couple of doctrines. But it will spend us a little bit more time next week uh, in the sweetness of God's grace. We could talk about it forever. Uh, but uh, that is the divine motive. That's the reason why people are saved is because of God's grace. Um, any questions, thoughts, comments, anecdotes, monologues, soliloquies, jokes? All right. Well, you guys should have my contact info at the church email. You can talk to me afterwards, anything, if you ever want any information extra about any of this stuff, whether this topic or anything else, I'd be happy to throw some resources at you. So thanks, everybody, for being engaged and keeping the conversation going. It makes the class more fun. I don't want to just lecture. So, All right, well, have a good week. One, two, and three. <laughs>